Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit A science story, huh? Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about times when we have to change our plans and pursue a different course. Sometimes life takes you in a direction you never expected, but it turns out to be the right call. Uh, Maybe, for example, you were someone who thought she'd never have to think about science again after she passed 12th grade physics. And now you're the artistic director of a science storytelling organization, and you think about it every day. (laughs) And weirdly, you're actually pretty into it. Again, that's just one example. Uh, We'll hear two more from our storytellers today. Our first story is from David Nett. It was recorded in February 2019 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. Our theme that night was On Trial. It's 1997. I'm sitting in the theater at the Science Museum of Minnesota in downtown St. Paul. There are nine of us in the auditorium, one on stage, eight in the audience. Of those of us in the audience, five of us are applauding politely and three of us are sitting at a table near the stage writing. Uh, Those three work for the museum. They're the directors of the Science Live program. The other six of us are here auditioning for what 23-year-old David believes is the perfect job. (laughs) It's a position in the Science Live performance team giving uh, sketches and experiments throughout the museum for the kingly salary of $18,000 a year. (laughs) Think of that, $18,000. We're sitting in the auditorium watching each other audition. Uh, The woman on stage has just finished. She's about my age, and she taught us a children's song. It was fine. Had nothing to do with science. Uh... (laughs) But she's smiling and we're applauding. And I'm feeling a little bit bad because I know her smile is about to fade. (laughs) Because I'm up next. (laughs) And I'm about to bring the fucking house down. (laughs) Someone calls my name, I stand, I straighten my lab coat. That's right, I've got a real life lab coat. I grab my box full of flasks and pipettes and I stride confidently toward that stage. Now, why am I so confident in this moment? Well, it's not just the stupid confidence of a middle-class, college-educated 23-year-old white man. (laughs) Not just that. (laughs) You see, uh, I know something that these five poor saps don't know. Not only am I an actor, But unlike the rest of them, 
I am almost a scientist. <laughs> you see, my dad's a scientist, he's a chemist. Uh, my brother is also a chemist, at least by training, and though my degree is in acting, when I started college, I was pretty convinced I was going to be the next Richard Feynman. For those of you who don't know Feynman, he's a very famous physicist. Uh, he was a Nobel Prize winner, among the youngest members of the Manhattan Project, a distinguished professor. Um, he was also a great writer. He was great at taking really complex scientific ideas and distilling them down to layman's terms in a series of really wonderful books, some of them very funny. He's also a brilliant performer. Um, his lectures attracted huge crowds of scientists and non-scientists, and everybody always hung on his every word. I wanted to be him very badly. Uh, so I got uh, scholarships at the local university for both physics and English, and I decided to take some theater classes as well so I could cover all of the bases, uh, and I was on my way. Um, however, uh, as my math and science classes got more difficult, uh, I discovered that I might not be as smart as I thought I was. Uh, by my third year of school, I was struggling with my high-end science classes and maintaining the GPA that my scholarships required was not as effortless as it had been when I was young. I slowly began to realize that I may not, in fact, be a genius. <laughs> this was a great blow. I mean, who could have known that graduating second in a class of 42 in a tiny town of 900 people on the North Dakota Prairie might not make you an actual genius? A lot of people probably. Some of them geniuses, but unfortunately not me. Fortunately, I had a backup plan. My first couple of years of school, I had developed a great love for the theater. So my backup plan was this. I was going to leave behind my three years of English and physics education, ditch my scholarships, change schools, take out loans, cram a BFA in acting into two years and become a famous actor. It was the kind of plan whose uh, idiotic simplicity could only come from a 20-year-old brain. And my parents, with their loving support, uh, and my girlfriend, who just by coincidence happened to be an acting student at the new school, uh, agreed that it was a great plan, and so I was on my way. Uh, so here I was. Uh, three years later, one year shy of a BA in English, one semester shy of a BA in physics, one disputed transfer class short of a BFA in acting, uh, three professional plays and a local commercial under my belt. I was ready for this. As I mounted that stage, my gear in hand, I was supremely confident that I was easily the most qualified person in this room, perhaps in the entire greater Minneapolis-St. Paul area to be part of the Minnesota Science Museum Science Live program. I began to unload my gear and set up my experiment. I took my time. Both science and the theater reward patience. I set up my table. <laughs> I set up my table. I placed three large Erlenmeyer flasks full of colored liquid side by side on the table. I produced three pipettes of descending diameter and placed them beside each flask. One, two, three, just so. And I began my demonstration of the capillary effect. It was the perfect science demonstration. It was colorful, it was fun, it was simple to learn and to teach. It was so simple, in fact, that I had barely had to rehearse at all. 
So I started talking about the basics, uh, surface tension, cohesion versus adhesion. And suddenly I realized that this is taking a lot longer than I thought that it was going to. I only had five minutes for the entire demonstration and I had no idea how much I had, time I had spent on this introduction. It's okay, we'll pivot to the flasks. We point out the three flasks, good, they look cool, everybody seems impressed. I talk about the pipettes a little bit. And then I realized that while I had practiced inserting the pipettes into each flask and watching the liquid rise to different levels, I hadn't actually planned anything to say while I was doing this. <laughs> it's okay, I'll roll with that. Those improv classes that I hated because they were a waste of time when I could have been studying the Bard or the Great American Playwrights will finally come in handy for once. Deep breath, yes and, <laughs> we've got this. And I did have it. I finished the demonstration, it was pretty great. Uh, I got a little chuckle at the end, which I have no idea what I said to deserve it because I hadn't actually planned an ending. And then I finished up by wrapping it all together by saying, ladies and gentlemen, that is the capillary effect in action. <laughs> a light applause from the audience. It was okay, I hadn't really expected more. They were my competition after all, and I had just dropped a science bomb on them. <laughs> So I leave the stage, gathering my things, I leave the stage, and the next person that comes up on stage is an actor about 10 years older than me. I had seen him in a couple of plays around town. He was a good actor. And he gets to the stage and he tells us that he's, he's gonna tell a story, but that he needs our help. And so he assigns us each a word that when he stomps or claps or points or whatever, we're supposed to shout out that word. It's super corny, I roll my eyes a whole bunch. Um, and he starts to tell his story. It's about bunnies, not about science in any way, just like the first person. Uh, but I, you know, I play along. When he points to me, I shout my word just loud enough, you know, to be polite. Uh, but to my surprise, my competition in the audience are really getting into it. Like they're yelling out their word, they're laughing at his story. Even the panel up front seems to be really engaged. He brings his story to this raucous conclusion, and everyone hollers and claps and shouts, and I'm just kind of looking around, dumbfounded. You know, he he leaves the stage. The next guy that gets up there, he teaches us a dance. And he's super broad, he's like a clown. And I, I can't understand what's happening, but my competition is like up and dancing in the aisles and laughing and playing along. And I, I'm, I'm looking around at all of them, just completely uh, unsure about what's going on in this room. He leaves the stage and the third person after me goes up and it's a woman I recognize from the children's theater in town. And it's more interaction and it's more laughter and it's more applause from the audience, but not a single drop of science. Like, what are, you, what are you people doing? Don't you know this job is about science? <sighs> By the time the last person takes the stage, I've calmed myself a little bit. Of course, this is what these people are doing. They're actors, you know? They're overcompensating because they don't know science. <laughs> I do. <laughs> this is still my job for the taking. When we're all finished, the, the staff take the stage and the woman who's in charge, she thanks us for coming out on a weekday. And she says, this was so much fun. You were all so great. We had so much fun. And that's the most important thing in this job. And then she looks directly at me. And she says, oh, and we learned a little bit too. <laughs> and, 
And it was in that moment that I realized I had been completely outmatched. I had misunderstood the assignment completely. It didn't matter how high my test scores were or what I had studied in school or how many times I had read Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman. My job had been to come into this room and to delight a small audience by teaching them something, anything. You know, if I'd gotten the job, the museum would have provided the science. I had come and brought to this audition a brand new lab coat and a five-minute disjointed middle school science lecture. The others had brought joy. I didn't get the job. <laughs> and I wish I could tell you that it was the last time I was overconfident for an audition that I was woefully unprepared for, but it wasn't. <laughs> it took me a long time to learn how to prepare to bring joy into that room. I still often fail, but I always try. Interestingly, when I was doing research on the Science Museum of Minnesota to make sure that I got the names and things right for this story, I learned that the current director of the Science Live program is actually an old college friend of mine. And I, yeah, and I couldn't help but thinking that if I reached out to her, I might be able to get an audition. <laughs> After more than 20 years, that sweet $18,000 a year, perfect job might finally be mine, because I know what to do this time. I know to bring joy. Thank you. That was David Nett. David has spent over 20 years in Los Angeles writing, producing, and acting in TV, film, and theater. Currently, he's the writer for Geek and Sundry's Starter Kit, the VP of Entertainment Development for Arc Media, co-owner of Herb's Journey Fitness with his wife, Christy, and the dungeon master for two ongoing Dungeons & Dragons campaigns, one that he's been running since 1987. He wants to thank his parents, who did not utter a single angry word to his face, uh, in parentheses there, when he left his academic scholarships behind to study acting. Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in citro CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them I sent you. Before we continue today, we need to have a talk. <laughs> 
As you may remember, a few weeks ago, we had an episode called The Joy of Cats, which featured two very funny stories about cats from comedian John Marcos Razi and Story Collider New York producer Tracy Rowland. We received a really great response from this episode. It was one of our funniest episodes ever, I think. But we also received a couple of very angry emails from some very upset cat lovers. Uh, For example... I will read you this one. Just listen to your cat hater episode. What were you thinking? Believe it or not, there are thousands of people in your audience who own and love cats and who don't deserve to be ridiculed or insulted because we care for an animal you don't understand or appreciate. Even the introduction to these stories was mean spirited. (laughs) That one's on me, everybody. (laughs) When are you going to do the dog hater episode? Oh, what's that? Never? Know why? Because it would upset a huge number of dog lovers. Why can't you be respectful of all pets? I'm very disappointed in your podcast and will very likely be unsubscribing and sending emails to your sponsors so that they're aware of what they're supporting with their ad money. Wow. Okay, so it turns out cat lovers are intense. Uh, Just to remind you, we once did a two-part series on abortion and did not receive emails that were this intense. Uh, Just to clarify right off the bat, Story Collider does respect all pets. I promise (laughs) we do not hate cats. We wish them nothing but the best. In fact, uh, Tracy, who told the second story in that episode, has devoted a pretty significant portion of her life to rescuing and fostering cats. Uh, she was once late to a sound check for one of our shows because she was literally saving kittens from a drain pipe. So uh, this episode was not any kind of deliberate attempt to cast aspersions on cats as a species. It just so happened that the two cat stories we had uh, highlighted some of their negative characteristics, such as Giardia, for example. Um, and I might be wrong, but if my memory serves, I don't think that we in the nine-year history of Story Collider, have ever received a pitch for a positive story about cats. Now, far be it from me to say that this is because positive stories about cats don't exist. I would never say that. Those are words that would never come out of my mouth. However, (laughs) we have not heard those stories, uh, which is why I'm inviting all the cat lovers in our audience to email their positive cat stories to stories at storycollider.org. I will read any pro-cat stories we receive on a future episode of our podcast. A few conditions. They must be your stories. I don't want to hear any um, internet listicles or secondhand information about your weird uncle's roommate's cousin's cat. And these stories must be under 500 words. But I will read them. That is my commitment to you. So send me your stories about uh, hero cats. Maybe your cat once single-handedly you know, carried a family out of a burning building, or maybe they have won the Medal of Courage for uh, their military service, or maybe your cat once braved a blizzard to pull a sled full of medicine to sick children in Nome, Alaska. Whatever the case, I am looking forward to hearing about it. In all seriousness, though, we have had a story about a transformative relationship with a pet snail, so I am sure there are stories out there about transformative relationships with cats. So send them to me so we can restore balance to the force. All right, so moving on. Our next story today is from Siobhan Battle. It was recorded in March 2019 at Haymarket Theater, Squire Student Center in Blacksburg, Virginia. 
This was a private show sponsored by Virginia Tech, and the theme that night was public-inspired science. I'm almost finished. I'm almost finished. I have to get my homework done. I was racing the sun. I was racing the descent into darkness. You see, where I grew up, electricity, food to eat, clean water, much less water in itself, that was a privilege. I want you to take a journey with me. Everybody in the room, close your eyes. I want you to hear what the descent into darkness sounds like. Fighting. You stole my wallet. Gunshots. Pow, 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 pow. Zombies searching for their next fix anywhere they can find it. Trash cans. Get out my yard. The sound of my heartbeat beating, waiting anxiously, watching every car turn onto my court, hoping that that car was the car that was bringing my mother home. The sound of three kids laying in the bed together, me being the oldest, nine years old, my baby sister next to me whining out of discomfort, my brother <gasps> gasping for air with his little baby asthmatic lungs. The sound of emptiness as I would have silent tears, praying and crying myself to sleep at night, still hungry. That's the sound of poverty. Why me? That was the sound of poverty. Okay, I want you to open your eyes now because even at nine years old, I knew that there was another day. I knew that the sun would rise. I knew that there was school, a place where I could get two meals at least, right? But school was my rabbit's foot. School was my everything because even though I could not control my environment around me, I knew I could control, just like those two meals, what I fed my mind. So I worked hard at it. I worked really hard. I was a, a stellar student. I was the shyest kid. I'm still shy, believe it or not. And I would raise my hand. I would speak up because I didn't want to be left behind. And, and it's not just that I didn't want to be left behind, but I wanted to pull those that were left behind up. And I knew that this was my ticket to do it. So I worked hard all the way into my senior year, and I said, you know what? Journalism, law, psychology, yes, William & Mary accepted me. I am on my way. I can change someone's life. I can make sure a kid does not have a life like me. And that was until I went to the doctor. You see, just like not having clean water or maybe food in the refrigerator, going to the hospital was only if you were close to dying, or something was dying, or you were dead, okay? So with that being said, my first checkup was, my first woman checkup was when I was 17 years old, a senior in high school. And I'll never forget that day, because maybe going to the hospital for something dying it was telling of my journey. 
So the doctor comes in and he says, Siobhan, and I said, yes. And he said, your uterus never developed. My, my uterus never developed, what does that mean? How can this be possible? What is going on? How is this possible, God? What does that mean? I can't have children? I love children. I want to save children. I want to make sure children didn't have a life like me. How is this possible? How am I going to make a change? My family, you know, the, the discomfort, the disbelief, and then the pity. And my mother, my mother who was a kid when she had me, just every time she looked at me would swell up with tears. It was like they felt what I felt, but how could they feel what I felt? I was the one that had something die inside of me before it even had a chance to live. But again, I knew the sun would come up. If there was nothing else I learned from not having anything, that was resourcefulness. That was resiliency. That was me asking, what am I supposed to do with this? There has to be more. So I said, okay, doc, okay, family, okay, mom. I, can't, I don't have a uterus? Okay, God, I know what you want me to do. You want me to create one. Yes, I said it. You want me to create an artificial uterus? I can do that, no problem. <laughs> so I went to Virginia Tech. I studied material science engineering, long, yes. I studied material science engineering with a biomed concentration, and I was going to make that artificial uterus, only I didn't. Thank goodness I picked up some skills along the way. <laughs> so with those skills, I went on to work as an engineer, but there was still something pulling inside of me. That little nine-year-old girl that wanted to change lives, I couldn't feel that instant impact. So I said, I'll cheat a little. I'll become a teacher, right? I have a classroom full of kids. So I became a math and science teacher and I did that for a while, but there was still something pulling at me. It wasn't enough. God wasn't finished with me. And that's when he introduced me to my two little boys at four and six. They were left at a Greyhound bus station in Richmond, Virginia. So I said, wow. You weren't finished with me. You made me, you gave me the pretest with the classroom and seeing if I was okay with kids, which I was all right. And then you gave me a real test. You did something bigger. I didn't have a uterus, but you made me a mommy. And initially it was like, wow, okay, I got this. But I need to go back to engineering because on a teacher's salary, I could eat ravioli and cereal, but I'm like, I need to feed them some vegetables or something, you know? So I went back into engineering, but there was still something pulling at me. And I prayed about it and I talked to God and I'm like, well, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm, I'm changing lives. But that wasn't it. It wasn't me changing those kids' lives, they changed my life. They showed me what it meant to be a mother. This was the real test. God wanted to see if I could love any child, even a child that didn't have my dimples or my laugh, even a child that would eventually become a teenager. I have two of them now, those two boys, and I don't know if I like them, I love them, but. <laughs> he wanted to see if I could love any child. And so I could. 
but it still wasn't enough. And I knew this. And that's when I had a chance encounter. I was on an elevator running to a meeting and I happened to meet Dr. Mark Edwards. And he said four words to me, maybe four, yes, that really let me know I wasn't where I was supposed to be at that moment. He said, you will change the world. Five words, I'm sorry. <laughs> you will change the world. And it stuck with me. And basically he said, I'd like for you to start in Chicago. And if you don't know what's going in on in Chicago, they lead the nation in lead service lines, okay? But they also lead the nation in lead poison children. This was it. This was a way for me to use my engineering degree to tap into that nine-year-old girl that knew what it was like to be the most vulnerable and to try and give back in some way. This was my way to love any child. This was God kind of playing games with me at that point. You didn't give me a uterus. You didn't give me the capacity to create an artificial uterus. But you gave me this huge, universal uterus. You gave me the ability to love any child. The ability to love a child that I did not give life to. There was nothing bigger than that. You made me a mom to seven billion, not just two. So this changed the course of my life. I knew this was my opportunity. This was my opportunity to actually allow kids that grew up like me to understand and connect with those words, life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. Something I wasn't privy to. I didn't know what that meant. Liberty? Liberty was determined to me by what, where I could get my food. Okay? Liberty is about unchaining the mind. I didn't get that at nine years old, hungry. In life, life was really the well of liberty and happiness together that everyone should be able to sip from. Everyone should be able to have clean water. Okay. Everyone should be able to sip from that life. So this was my opportunity to tackle Chicago, to tackle other places in the nation, to make sure that kids that grew up like me, didn't ignore hospital visits, understood what it meant to have lead in your water and what that exposure could do. This was my opportunity to be a mother, not just to my two boys, but to every child, young and old, in the world. This was my opportunity to allow children that grew up like me to sip from that well. This was my opportunity to prevent anyone else from descending into darkness. That was Siobhan Battle. Siobhan is a Virginia Tech graduate student who has a bachelor's degree in material science and engineering and is now in pursuit of a planning, governance, and globalization PhD. Siobhan's life changed when she connected her background to the social engineering world in hopes of tackling the physiological and psychological impact of socioeconomic despair. 
Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely. As this episode goes live on Friday, I will be on my way down to D.C. to attend Liz's wedding to her fiancé, Ed. Congratulations to both of them so much. I'm going to try my hardest not to have too many drinks and ruin my toast. Fingers crossed, everybody. And we are grateful, as always, for the help of our Deputy Director, Nissa Greenberg, our Operations Support Manager, Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Joseph Scrimshaw, Audrey Kearns, Christine Gentry, and Emma Yarbrough. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Lyric Hyperion and Virginia Tech for hosting these shows. And to Liz for all of your work to make Story Collider what it is. And to Ed for supporting her in that work. Thank you for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.